Hey there everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed network, and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name is Rob, and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie, and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. You can find us on Twitter, and you can find us on Etsy. Our pages on both websites can be found at GOT. That is at Longest Night GOT. We are selling Longest Night pin badges for super cheap on our Etsy page. Uh, and there's a link in the description if you want to go and have a look. Our title music was provided by friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas. And you can find all of his available work in the show notes as well. All right, then. Let's keep going with season six. <laughs> This week we are going to be discussing Season 6, Episode 2 of Game of Thrones, which is entitled Home, and as I said at the end of last week's episode, this is the shortest episode title in all of Game of Thrones, it's just the four letters and the one word. It was written by Dave Hill and directed by Jeremy Podesva. It was first broadcast on the 1st of May 2016 to an audience of 7.29 million people, Lizzie, what do we make of Season 6, Episode 2, Home? It's a good episode. Um, I think I initially didn't like the ending, actually. When I first messaged you, it was kind of like, I should have seen that coming. I really... I, in my heart of hearts, I knew he wasn't... Well, I didn't know, actually. I'd sort of planned out the whole Castle Black storyline in my head. And when it, you know, when he eventually woke up, it was like, of course. But... But yeah, um, mostly good. Some slight niggles here and there. Yeah, um, okay, so this, for me, um, this is an episode I really love. Um, It's another kind of landmark episode, because as much as I watched um, Season 6, Episode 1 live... Mm. I watched it at 9pm on the Monday night in the UK. I missed the, the simulcast which was the, which was broadcast at 2 a.m. on the Monday morning, and it went out at exactly the same time as the uh, episode in, in America. And so this yeah. was the first yeah. one where I watched it at 2 o'clock in the morning, UK oh, cool. time. So I have, lots of fun, I have lots of fond memories of it, um, first of all, so that may affect the rest of my analysis. But I think otherwise it is an episode that is packed and stuffed to the gills with exciting moments, points of no return, big decisive twists, great character introductions and reintroductions, and of course the answer to what was at the time the most open secret in all of show business, which is that Jon Snow is back. Um, The humour works a little better this week for me as well than it did last week. Don't think it's a perfect episode. I think Bravos is yet to really get going this season, um, and I can understand why this episode might be a bit too much too fast. Because you mentioned mm. to me, Lizzie, that it was a bit rich and you did have to pause it at one second or another because you were worried that while you were writing notes, you may have missed something crucial because of how much it comes at you. Oh, yeah. And it's it's kind of it's dense in that way because we go to so many places, it feels like. And, um, and in each of those, like you say, there is those points of no return. Mm. But in my major defense of this episode, and it feels like this is another landmark for the podcast in a way, because this was maybe, other than the Red Wedding, 
this was the other spoiler that I really didn't want you to know because mm. the way that you talk, John's character on both sides of his death, yeah, is really heavily affected. It, like talking about John's character in full retrospect of the show, it's basically impossible to have a full conversation about John's nature and his character before his death. And yeah. without giving away the fact that A, he's going to die, and that B, he's not going to be dead for very long. And his so I feel like now I can kind of finally let loose about John's character. And I feel like this episode also reveals what David Benioff and Dan Weiss have always wanted to do with this show, but have been restrained by um, maybe wanting to make it make the show first and make it successful. And now that it's successful and they're guaranteed that it's renewed until the end, like they, they got it basically renewed in perpetuity from this after season five. Um, they basically, I think they renewed for season six and then very quickly they renewed for seven and eight. And so mm-hmm. I feel like they, they knew this anyway. And so now stylistically, after a bit of a bump last week, they can really let loose and finally, the show starts to admit to itself something that, again, I always knew and have maybe alluded to in the, fa- in the past, which is that Game of Thrones is a soap opera. And soap operas are geared entirely. And people often get all, they, they get all annoyed when you say that Game of Thrones is a soap opera. But the way that, <laughs> the way that its story is structured and the way that it's written and the way that it is geared towards, you know, I've said this in the past where... Game of Thrones is a show, I don't know if I've said it on this show, but I've said it definitely to people in the past, which is that Game of Thrones is a show about moments. It's a show about big moments. And as much as there are a litany of dense characters and amazing stories and there are some amazing episodes without big moments in it, and as much as I think that, yeah, okay, it's a very fluid character-based drama it subverts all of the amazing it subverts so many things and it is amazing because of that and it you know it redefined how i thought television could go and all that i have alluded to the fact that its storytelling style is very efficient they con david benioff and dan weiss they write on you know they, they write as if it's a chessboard that moves piece by piece it's very efficient it's very mechanical and it's because everything is geared towards big moments hmm. and I think that this episode is Game of Thrones as a soap opera, soap opera at its maximum, where it is just big moments, big moments, big moments. And when there aren't big moments, it's teasing you with tiny pieces of information that are geared specifically towards the big moments. And I feel like now they're away from the books, they can really let this fly. And so we had a little bit of a stylistic bump in the road last week where I feel like they were letting letting themselves loose a little bit but with more it it was more it was more preoccupied with organizing things after the end of season five it feels like this is where it really begins to let loose and it stylistically from this point on i think lizzie because you've liked the last two episodes generally i'd say that you're with it i think there were some people who kind of started to feel like the the mechanical efficient storytelling style and this more soap opera style that began to take over. And mm. I, some people, I think, were negatively, they, they responded negatively to that. Oh, don't don't get me wrong. I still have some problems with this episode. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. But, but you're, you're you generally know, on the whole. With the, yeah, you're generally with the tone, though. Like, you're not like, yeah, going, yeah. what's happened? Why has everything gone wrong? That sort of thing. 
And yeah. so, yeah, I think that we'll talk about it more as we go around because we have got a lot of places to get to this week. But I, I really, I, I do, I, this episode is not in my perfect 10, but it's very high. And it's kind of strange because Dave Hill, who writes this episode, he's written, he writes in the end, he goes on to write four total episodes of Game of Thrones. He does uh, Sons of the Harpy from season five, this one from season six, and then he does uh, one in season seven and then one in season eight. And his episodes that he does generally are among my least favorites. I don't know why. It just All right. his style okay. doesn't really chime with me for some reason. I think a lot of his episodes are bogged down by similar things, and I'll talk about them more when I get into them in, later in the show. But this one really stands out to me for some reason. I think it's got a really sharp and lovely script. I think it's got a great screenplay. There are some lovely lines in this. Um, and yeah, I, I think I find this very episode very exciting. So yeah, yeah. Congratulations, father. I look forward to meeting my new brother. You'll always be my firstborn. Thank you for saying that. It means a great deal to me. <laughs> <laughs> At Winterfell, Roose Bolton chastises Ramsay again after discovering that Sansa and Theon escaped from Ramsay's best men. The new Lord Karstark, who was present at this meeting, swears loyalty to the Boltons. Uh, soon after, Maester Walken walks in and gives the news that Lady Walder has given birth to a son, and knowing that his position is under threat now, Ramsay stabs Roose and kills him very suddenly, and he instructs Maester Walken to inform the other northern houses that Roos was poisoned by their enemies. Ramsay then immediately sends for Lady Walder and her son, and feeds them both to his hounds, and then assumes the title of Lord Bolton for himself. And outside Winterfell, having escaped the castle, Sansa, Theon, Brienne and Podrick, they all make camp. Uh, Brienne tells Sansa that she saw Arya in the Vale, uh, semi-recently, and afterwards Theon tells Sansa that he intends to return home to the Iron Islands. And I don't know when he said home, did you... I know Bran Stark says it first in this episode, but did you point at the screen and go, ah, he said the title? <laughs> well, I had already, like you say, I'd already pointed at the Bran bit, and I think I've got, like, I don't know if there's maybe an award for the fastest time to character recitation of the episode title a mere four <laughs> minutes for Bran Stark <laughs> and that's including the him. theme tune but yeah yes. yeah but we get a second drop of it here um so massive events at Winterfell this week um yeah big turn as well in the storyline what do you make of it this is kind of my weak point of the episode okay with um with Ramsay and Roos because I, you know, I kind of agree with Sarah Hughes of The Guardian in that I think I prefer Roos's more sort of calculating, a cerebral approach to pure evil than just Ramsey's psych. Is it psychopathy, psychopathy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. But it just kind of, I don't know. It feels like surely the people in Winterfell at the minute are following Roos and not Ramsey. But I can also maybe appreciate that, you know, people wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of Ramsay because they know what he can do. It's just, I don't know, it's Ramsay, he's, I, I get what they're trying to do, but he's almost too cartoony at this point. 
I do, to be honest, I kind of love the cartooniness of it. I love the fact that when he steps forward and says, I am Lord Bolton, and it's like Ramsay Bolton, maximum supervillain. Like, <laughs> like yeah. they've made him so very cartoonishly evil in this. I think, to be honest, the implication in the scene with that Lord Karstark saying, you're talking to your lord, use respect, is that it's another situation very similar to Dawn last week where a coup has been planned. Very right, I see. quietly, and like, and so at the moment of this son's birth, Ramsey's like, right, sp- got spring into action. It's done. It's prepared. And I think Maester Walken is maybe the surrogate for the rest of the Bolton army and the rest of the right, the, okay. where it's sort of like a bit not fearful, but like you said, maybe don't want to get on the wrong side of him. But yeah, yeah, dragging Lady Walder right out into the castle in broad daylight and just mauling her to death with the dogs, um, stepping forward and doing the whole I am Lord Bolton thing. It's basically just a another quick seizure of power because we're at the point in the show now where it's going to start, and again, this is another landmark, I think, where it has to start cutting corners a little bit now because we're we're currently in the point in the story that George R. R. Martin is yet to write. Yeah. And it's taken him 10 years to get himself past the point where we just were about four or five episodes ago. And because he's right. not someone who cuts corners, he's someone who, you know, nudges the story along very gently. He calls himself a gardener. David yeah, yeah. Benioff and Dan Weiss have kind of come in and gone, look, okay, fine. You write novels and you can take your time with them. You know, your your actors won't, in the books, you know, you don't have actors that will get old. So we have yeah, to yeah. kind of carry on here. And so the corner cut is that you have to do a, maybe a bit of an assumption, which is just that there's a coup that's been planned. It's suddenly sprung into action at the moment of Lady Walder giving birth to a son. Um, and now Ramsay is just Lord Bolton and he's got the Karstarks on side and the Karstarks and the Boltons are now in an alliance with each other. And that's that's that. Like, I think that's... You just kind of have to explain it away for yourself. It's a little bit like... Um, how do I put this? It's like, whatever you think has happened, has happened. If, if you know what I okay. mean. And so yeah. you have to kind of fill in the blanks a little bit. Um, although I remember in this scene... I remember the first time I ever watched this. I didn't actually fully know who had been stabbed because if you watch it back... I can you see can, that. Yeah. You can see a knife on Ramsey's back if you watch it back a second time. But the first time, I, you know, you don't pay attention to the little details. And I didn't know who'd been stabbed at first because of the angle. And I only worked it out when Ruth started uh, sort of groaning and exclaiming and then you, you see the knife... Yeah, it's no, you are. and also like Ramsey does that sort of grimace. You know what I mean when he when he stabs somebody, he's got that sort of maniacal look, like he's just lost control of his senses. Yes, and so yeah, I I can definitely see that, and I can you know I can almost see why Roos might want him out of the way hmm. if he's just going to cause trouble. And now, like yeah, Roos had a point. He warned that. Storming Castle Black would turn the north against Ramsay, but I can't imagine that the people in the Riverlands, and especially the twins, will be especially thrilled to learn that Ramsay has killed not only Roos, but also Walder Frey. Um, do you mean Walder Frey, I take it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> I, I also had that in my yeah. notes, because, like, that's a. So it's too similar, that name. Come on. <laughs> Walder Frey's imagination lost him towards the end. Mm-hmm. 
in a continuation of last week's scene uh, outside Winterfell, we get a really lovely atmosphere and scene uh, with Sansa and Brienne and then yeah. Sansa and Theon. Um, Sansa asking about Arya is uh, something to make your heart skip a little bit. Um, yeah. Brienne's little, well, she wasn't dressed like a lady and then Sansa's little thing, which, no, she she wouldn't be. That's not her. Um, I I really do... I, I love these little quiet scenes outside the winter outside in the Winterfell woods. Um I just think that after the, the chaos at Winterfell, it's just nice to have a period of quiet and these this is one of the more quiet and more intimate moments of the episode. Yeah, although it does feel like it could be interrupted at any moment. So it doesn't feel like a moment of peace to me. It feels like you're constantly sort of looking over your shoulder. Mm, yeah, the paranoia is listening not left for dogs yet. in the distance. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely still there, but it does mean that I think um, you know, particularly Theon in this episode, it feels like they're they're pressed for time, and so they're really having to sort of say what they mean to say, and it's, mm. and so you get that kind of thing where he's explaining, you know, I would have I would have died just to save you. You wouldn't say that in just average conversation, but. Mm. It's one of those things where it's like, I I might not have much longer to spend with you and I needed to say this. Yeah, I think it all comes out with Theon this week where at, yeah, yeah. At the, sort of at the end where he sort of says, I, I don't really want to be forgiven for anything that's happened. I just, I actually, like Theon's sort of flagellating himself a little bit where he's sort of saying like, I, I deserve this punishment and yeah, yeah. I deserve to be... You know, I, I I do deserve to, you know, I don't deserve to take the oath and have all my crimes forgiven. I just, I deserve to go home and kind of suffer for the mistakes I've made on the mainland, basically. Yeah, um, yeah so it leaves it in an interesting place. Um, and where it cuts to is uh, where we're going to go next. And when the storm passed, you cut out their tongue. I needed silence. What kind of an ironborn loses his senses during a storm? I am the storm, brother. The first storm and the last. And you're in my way. At Pike on the Iron Islands, Balon Greyjoy criticises Yara Greyjoy for disobeying him and laments the fact that he has nothing to show for being the last surviving king of the War of the Five Kings. Uh, when attempting to cross a bridge between the island's castles, he is confronted by his younger brother and new face, Euron Greyjoy. And yes. after arguing with Euron, Balon attempts to stab him, but is thrown over a bridge to his death. And at Balon's funeral, Yara swears vengeance on the person responsible for Balon's death, but is reminded that her chances of becoming queen of the Iron Islands depend on an upcoming election, which is referred to as the King's Moot. Um, more expensive, explosive stuff at, uh, at the Iron Islands. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, the, this episode overall feels like sort of... Um, I've mentioned death and rebirth as a theme before, and it's kind of the old guard being pushed aside for the new blood. Yeah. You know, Roos and Ramsay, um, Balon and... Uh, what's his name again? Euron. <laughs> Euron, thank you. Um, but yeah, poor, poor Balin Greyjoy. You know, the last surviving king of the five in the titular war, but clearly so <laughs> non-threatening that the war just ended without him. Despite him yeah. 
being alive and being healthy to a point and as far as I can recall not surrendering or swearing allegiance to any of the other parties just hmm. I don't know being holed up in the Iron Islands is like oh, who fucking cares it's Bale and Greyjoy yeah but yeah um, Euron improves things massively I'm so excited for this it's it's that scene on the bridge and with the you know the rain pelting down I feel like I'm at home <laughs> it's like an average day in in Manchester, you know. But now, now you're dropping the title, Lizzie. Now you're dropping the title. <laughs> it's, it's like being at home in Manchester, you know, by <laughs> Deansgate. Yeah, yeah. Um, before um, before I talk about how much I love Euron Greyjoy's introduction, this is yeah. I love this scene. All the other kings are dead, and no one's recognised me or anything. So, what have I got to show for any of this? And it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nothing Where at you all. Um, but yeah, um, Yara's back after like a whole season off. Um, yes. And God. we get um, also the last leech. The last of Melisandre's leeches are gone, and Stannis wasn't alive to see it. Yeah. So just that. Um, but yeah, Euron. I I love his introduction. I just love the, the the sort of like the poetic dialogue and the fact that like he just seems like this unstoppable force this i am the storm brother the first storm and the last and you're in my way it's it's a great line reading um i love the fact that we get his whole backstory which is that he's basically a a pirate who lost his mind and had to be chained to a a a boat in order to to sort of like jump stop from uh, jumping overboard he cuts out people's tongues if they betray him and he just says oh i needed silence and uh, yeah, I just I think it's an amazing introduction, like you say, with the rain and the 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 bridge kind of swaying in the wind, and it, it could yeah, throw yeah. both of them off at the same time. But they the way that they frame it, it's like Balon's clinging onto the ropes, and he's like, "Oh God, I don't want to fall." Whereas Euron's like standing on his own two feet, no worries at all, and all he leaves yeah. the scene with is a bit of a gash on his cheek, and he's he doesn't even have a weapon, and he wins the fight. He just throws him over the bridge. It's um, no, you're right, yeah, yeah. Look, didn't like, um, didn't Balon have a knife or something, and he just sort of yeah um, tries to get him past him, yeah, and and then he fell to his death, sort of wily coyote style. But yeah, yeah, I, I can't say I'm going to miss Balon Greyjoy. <laughs> no, but a, a potentially more exciting character has uh, appeared in his place. Absolutely, and, uh, and if we've you know we've potentially got Theon returning soon, hmm. I don't think he'll be returning to the same place that he left. And nope. yeah, that could be interesting. But I'm very keen to see this. It's it's kind of the inverse of what was happening in Dawn, where it's like, oh God, when is this going to end? I'm like, I need more of this now, please. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad you're looking forward to it because the Iron Islands has been out of the story for a while and now it we're has, back there. Yeah. It's, it's good to go back with some good material. Yeah, Absolutely. We close our eyes on this world and open them on the next. You must long for the next life. In truth, I fear that too. You imprisoned and humiliated my sister. Your sister sought the gods' mercy and atoned for her sin. What about my sins? I broke a sacred oath and stabbed my king in the back. I killed my own cousin. When the gods judged my brother guilty, I helped him escape that justice. What atonement do I deserve? 
In King's Landing, Cersei is prevented from attending Marcella's funeral by Tommen, who fears that the High Sparrow will arrest her again if she leaves the Red Keep. And at Marcella's funeral, Jamie sends Tommen to see Cersei before confronting the High Sparrow himself. And Jamie threatens the High Sparrow as retaliation for the way that Cersei has been treated, but he is unnerved eventually by the High Sparrow's response and the presence of the Faith Militant. Tommen then visits Cersei and apologises for keeping her under guard. And he also apologises for his indecisiveness after her and Marjorie's arrests. And he asks Cersei to teach him to be strong so that he can protect the people that he loves. And elsewhere in the city, after boasting that he briefly seduced Cersei during her traumatic walk of atonement, a flea-bottom resident has his head smashed against the wall by the mountain. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. More good stuff in King's Landing this week. Um, the yeah, scene yeah. between Jamie and the High Sparrow is a really big highlight. I think the, oh, yeah. the scene with uh, Tommen is quite a highlight. And even the sort of silly slapstick stuff of the guy's head being smushed against a brick wall is uh, it's pretty pretty funny. Um, what well, do you yeah. make of it? What do you make of it? Well, since you mentioned last week about the light zone of season six, I found it impossible to ignore how... <laughs> The show has used violence as a form of comedy so far in the season. And in this particular episode, you know, there's... Well, in this episode alone, there's two examples of a large man making light work of a much smaller man, both times being, you know, brutally killed, but presented as if it were like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Yeah. So Gregor just casually shoves that drunk perv's head into a wall, and it... It's a sound it makes. It's a little splat, like, you know, he's squishing a bug or something. <sighs> and then, obviously, later on, we have one one. He gets that tiny arrow to the shoulder, and then he just kind of turns around, picks up the archer, flings him against the wall, and then onto the floor. And you kind of wonder if the show is, like, mocking its own ridiculous level of violence at this point. Oh, God, yeah. Whereas in, in yeah. season five, it was just like, how gross can we make this? How how disgusting? No, it's like here, it's, yeah, we know that we do this a lot. So <laughs> what do you expect? Yeah, they're putting their own sort of stamp and tone on it. I think tone is the word where... David Benioff and Dan Weiss are striking their their the tone they would have wanted from the start. I think um, if it was their yeah. story and not not somebody else's. But um, away from that, though, I think that the the scene in the Great Sept with Jamie and the High Sparrow uh, is really oh, super it's brilliant. Yeah, the yeah. way that Jamie seems to have the upper hand and has his hand on the knife, but is somehow convinced to sort of let go by the High Sparrow's response. Where Jonathan Price is just amazing as the High Sparrow, where he sort of says, "Oh." Go on then, like it just, it, it's you know they'll they'll never you know my soldiers my my sparrows they'll never rescue me but so what like I, I've sort of embraced this but I love the way Jonathan Price sort of plays it where up front he is this very you know he's very pious and he seems like a very devout man and he is he is but in this conversation you can see how much of it is bluffing and that how much he has an idea about disrupting power circles to kind of, you know, create yeah. chaos to climb the ladder himself in the way that Littlefinger would. And this go on then is like the ultimate bluff. And he plays an amazing poker face with it. And He does, yeah. Because inside, I think, somewhere he genuinely believes that it, it, it would be some kind of destiny achieved for him. And 
I really, really, yeah, I really, really enjoy it. Um, and then the way that Jamie becomes slightly more dispirited. And even then, Jamie's sort of doing a similar thing to Theon in this episode, where he's sort of, like, recounting the fact that he's done awful things, like pushing Bran out of a window and killing uh, Alton Lannister uh, yeah, yeah. in season two and, and things like that. He stabbed his king and things like that. You know, all these terrible things that he's apparently done. And then he... You know, he's saying like, you know, what about my sins? What about my sins? And again, this idea about rebirth and renewal and trying to shed yourself of your former self that comes through in this episode. And I think that um, it just in that moment as well, where he's um, re- ready to gear the knife up for, to stick it in the high sparrow. And he sort of says, oh, the gods won't mind if I do this. You know, they've spilled more blood than the rest of us combined. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of very good lines in this and uh, two amazing performances and then a slow change of atmosphere as the sparrows uh, circle on them. What, what did you make of it? It's very tense. Absolutely. But... It is very tense. And I love the kind of shades of grey of it because I think, I guess the official position is that Jamie is the hero and the high sparrow is the villain. But there's, it's easy to kind of twist that around because, you know, the high sparrow, as you say, is very sort of pious he's very firm in his belief and he he can say that sort of thing about every one of us is poor and powerless and yet together we can overthrow an empire Hmm. and it's like yeah you know what jamie is part of this sort of corrupt decadent elite it's like yeah yeah i would want to overthrow them and i would definitely i might even be taken in myself by the high sparrow if he was a real person because that sort of thing resonates it's like yeah why should they be the rulers of us if we are fundamentally good people and they are not? Yeah. But then it's also, like like you say, um, Jamie says, well, why not judge me then? And it kind of flips it back around again. It's like, well, yeah, you not being a bit of a hypocrite by um, sort of taking Cersei into your presence but not doing anything about Jamie, who is just as much, if, if not more, guilty of, well, sin in this universe. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's really well done and I I hope we get more interactions from these two. What do you make of Tommen's role in this episode because it just feels a little bit like he is still there's a line at the end of season 4 where yeah. Cersei has a go at Tywin and says I won't I will burn our house to the ground before I let that happen and the and the that is Tywin and the Tyrells getting their claws in them and ripping him apart and tearing him in two. And Cersei's just sort of ended up doing that anyway because she's just emboldened the Faith Militant who have caused all of these issues. And now, I mean, and she knows this in herself when she goes to see him and when the tear rolls down his cheek and he's like, I'm sorry for trying to protect you. And I'm sorry for trying not to be... I'm trying to be a, a peaceful king and not to be violent. And it's just like... It's just heartbreaking. I just feel so bad for him. You raised is, me to be strong yeah. and I wasn't. And going back to season five, you know, the very beginning with the flashback scene, it feels doomed. You think there's no way you're going to survive as king. It's like... it Because mm. people already know you're weak and people are already against the mere existence of your family... You know, both the Faith Militant, but also people way beyond King's Landing. Mm. And, yeah, I don't... Like, I can't envision how this comes to an end, but I feel like it's bound to. I, I don't see him lasting as King beyond this season. 
So you're sort of you're, you're putting your cards on the table there. Yeah. I'll, okay. Yeah I'll, yeah, I'll go out and say I think I, it's one of those things where it's like you can you can predict a thing happening, but not how you get there. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I, I totally see that. Yeah. And I suppose it was convenient in season five that they said, oh, he's old away. He's just so distraught that he can't come out. You can't see anybody. That's fine. That's the way you get him out of the way into relative safety. But yeah, it feels like it's all come tumbling down and he's realised that this is too much. And he's still a boy. He's still, what is he, like 14? Yeah, 14, 15 years old, something like that. And you're, you're trying to be a peaceful king in this fucked up world where everybody hates everybody like it's never gonna work what about the dragons we have the two of them here beneath the pyramid they are not eating they haven't touched any food since queen daenerys left daenerys is the dragon queen we can't very well let the dragons starve that's obvious if a dragon does not want to eat how do you force him to eat dragons do not do well in captivity how do you know this that's what i do i drink and I know things. In Marine, Daenerys's small council discusses their next steps in her absence, and it's revealed that Yunkai and Astapor are once again under the control of the Masters, uh, which means they've fallen back into their old ways. And knowing that they need dragons to defend Marine, Tyrion frees Viserion and Rhaegar from their chains in the catacombs, and it enables to walk around the underground underground chamber. Um, short stuff in Marine this week, but a um, couple of pretty... I think the Tyrion sort of takes centre stage uh, in Marine this week. What would you make yeah, of... It's, it's, yeah, it's like a one-man show for Tyrion, basically. A little bit, yeah. A L- little bit, yeah. It's um, like straight from the off, he's sort of doing quips, and this is where the, the comedy tone really kicks in. Like, yeah. lines like, I'm friends with your mother to a dragon. Like... <laughs> it, it's a great line. It, it works. Yeah. It is a funny joke. But it's like, fucking hell, what is this show? The less funny <laughs> one is the kind of Whedon style, next time I have an idea like that, punch me in the face. Like, yeah, it's, it's not, not, not funny, but I'd rather just leave the scene with the the feeling that it's one of those it's something that happens in american comedy sometimes where like the joke is already on screen and then they say the joke oh yeah sometimes and it just punctures the atmosphere a little bit whereas like the atmosphere is already there where it's like he's nearly been incinerated by a couple of dragons and that was a stupid idea do it all by expression just have them walk out of there and never mention it it again but they just exchange a look like fucking hell and just walk out but it's it's yeah. like an extra beat sort of joke. It's he yes. said yeah. it's a living <laughs> yeah. yeah. grimace to the camera, you know. Um But but the stuff yeah. in the middle, what did you make of the, 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 the dragon scene itself? I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was like it's very tense, obviously, but it's quite sweet as well. Very, it's touching. Yeah, very. You know, Tyrion recounting how he'd asked for a dragon for his name day and clearly still being quite emotionally overwhelmed to be in the same, well, even the same planet as one, let alone the same room, mm. and then getting so close as to physically touch it. And it's a really great CGI, by the way, because you see the, you see one of the dragons sort of breathing in and out and the, the flesh, like, pulsating. Mm. It's really well done. Yeah, they do a great job of, um, beyond 
with with the CGI, it's something that really came up, I think, in uh, the the latter end of season five, which is that the dragons they're going they're doing so well with the CGI stuff at the moment that the dragons are turning into characters themselves and they're expressing yeah. emotions. And there's a moment after Tyrion has delivered this really sweet uh, monologue about how like he always wanted a dragon since he was little and you know he's Tyrion's tail is just so sweet and innocent and then when he's freed one dragon the other one is already there and and you can see it like he's staring straight at him and then it sort of like exposes its neck as if to sort of say right my turn you yeah take take yeah. the take the take my lead off it's like you know, two dogs you've just taken them for a walk you take the lead off one of them so it can go run around the house and then the other one's sort of like looking at you going come on my turn now. And it, it, again, it, I think that the dragons and the dragons in the show, dogs must have been the basis for oh, how yeah. they characterise them. I, I, it must be dogs. I was going to say the, the, the scene before this, you know, at the council, it's kind of confirming everything you said about the dragons being, well, the closest thing possible to dogs, who, mm. by the way, also should not be shackled up in the basement of a pyramid. No. But... <laughs> Yeah, in that, um, I, f- I forgot what he said now, but he's kind of explaining their behaviours and how you know if you if you don't you know if you don't feed them if you keep them shackled up they will get weaker and they will eventually die. Yeah, you know, and then again, as you say, just the movement of them, the expressions, and yeah, it's really well done. And it's also bloody tense. As well, they oh, do yeah. a pretty good job of making you think, "Oh, something might go wrong here." And then there's a, there's a sound in that scene that always sticks out at me as well, where um, one of the dragons—you can't tell which one's which really in the dark—but um, mm. where it goes to breathe fire at him, and then it powers down, and it's like this—the sound of this like motorbike just sort of like having the ignition turned off, or the way it sort of goes, and it's it's this weird like metallic machine-like sound as if it's turning off. I, I, I really love that. I think if, if anyone's listening yeah, yeah. and wants to go back, watch that scene on YouTube and you'll know you'll know the sound, I mean. Um, but yeah, no, it's... Um, it, yeah, it, it's a great a great scene and obviously you have them... The, the thing beforehand as well, the, um, that's what I do. I drink and I know things. That is, uh, I think... It's a winner. Yeah, t-shirt manufacturers were like, oh, gold mine! Fucking gold mine when that line was said, um, and you see that on t-shirts. It's a kind lot of now. An, it's it's an obvious Tyrion line though. You feel yeah. like he said it. You feel like he said it in season one. Yeah, it's something that he would have said back then. I think definitely. It's like it's like if you automated Tyrion, that would come out. <laughs> <laughs> says her name the man will let her sleep under a roof tonight a girl has no name if the girl says her name a man will feed her tonight a girl has no name if the girl says her name a man will give her eyes back a girl has no name in Bravos, the Waif returns to duel Arya with a wooden staff, and Arya, who is still blind and begging on the streets, uh, performs poorly in this fight again, but is suddenly surprised when Jack and Hagar turns up and offers her shelter, food, and the return of her eyesight, and she refuses all three of these offers, 
and pleased enough with her willpower and resistance, Jacken instructs Aya to follow him and says that she will no longer need to beg on the streets. Um, I have one note about Bravos this week, which is just Jacken is Jacken. So that's it. <laughs> you have one more note than me. Yeah, um, it's basically <laughs> the same as last week, but Aya's now going to go back to the House of Black and White. That's That's it. Yeah, which is a good thing. I was, yes. I was sort of wondering, like, how long are they going to keep Arya out on the streets? And how long is the waif just going to keep coming back and tormenting her? There's only so much of that you can... Yeah. Well, you, can't, you can't really do much with it beyond the base level, you know. The waif is bullying Arya. That's it. You can't c- keep going back to that. No. Um, um, and yeah, Jacken is Jacken. Forget the face-swapping stuff between him and the waif. It's, it's just that person you see... That's Jack and the character. Like it's still okay. Jack and the face, but that's just Jack and now. That's they've simplified it. They realise it got too complicated, and so they've basically pressed a big reset button where like I is on the streets. The wave comes to beat her up, and then suddenly disappears a couple of times. And now Jack and is is there and is like, okay, I'm happy with your progress. Let's bring you back. And so now we're just sort of dealing with the the blindness of it all and and things like that. And then you know, then next steps and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> I did like um, one small thing. I did like Arya's moment of hesitation. You know, when Jacken said, you know, um, if a girl tells me her name, I will cure her blindness or words to that effect. Yeah, yeah, give her eyes And there was back, just yeah. like a moment there where it's like, oh God, oh God, oh God. And, what, and then she, she does pass the test, thankfully. And yeah. Yeah. Um, looking forward to... I almost said looking forward to seeing Arya inside. That makes no sense. But <laughs> I'm, I'm glad she's roof. finally off the yeah. streets for yes. now. Stop showing off, Liana. My aunt Liana. I've seen her statue in the crypt. My father never talks about her. Beyond the wall at the Three-Eyed Raven's cave, Brandon Stark appears and he is experiencing visions of the past. He visits Winterfell from several years earlier and watches Ned Stark, Benjen Stark and Sir Roderick sparring while his aunt Lyanna Stark practices her horse riding and he even witnesses a very young Hodor whose real name is Willis, and discovers that Hodor was once able to talk, and shortly afterwards, Bran speaks with Mira, who still grieves for Jojen and has grown impatient with Bran's training, and Leif, who is one of the children of the forest, uh, reminds her that Bran will need her help in the future. Um, the scenes at Winterfell are and like beyond the wall and stuff. They're just so, in the visions, are so rich for me, like... Yeah, they go yeah. way back into Game of Thrones, like mythology, all these characters who are long dead or are still alive, but not what they once were. Um, it's just so exciting. And Bran is back and he's got a haircut and Max von Sydow is there. And the flashbacks are really juicy and you get to see old Winterfell and you find out that Hodor used to be able to talk. And then there's, and, and then there's just that little warning though. And it's two things that, undercut this scene in a beautiful way which is that 
Yeah. There's Max von Sydow, Three-Eyed Raven's insistence that, like, it's beautiful beneath the sea, but if you stay too long, you'll drown. And it's, like, a little bit of a warning to the audience where it's, like, we can't just live in flashbacks of the past. Like, we have a story to get on with. And the other thing is that watching all of these people, and Bran even says they were so happy, is that Lyanna Stark, Ned Stark, and Sir Roderick are all dead. Mm. Yeah. Benjamin Stark is missing, presumed dead, and yeah. Hodor is Hodor. And it's like, whatever existed is gone and was taken yeah. away. And this may have been the only moment where it was ever like this and where it was ever fine and where they were ever, ever happy. And there's even a little um, thing there as well where Lyanna turns to Benjamin and says, um, who are you going to spar with? when Ned goes off to the Eyrie, because Ned Stark grew up at the Eyrie. Uh, that's how he was friends with John Arryn. And at the start of the story, when John Arryn is poisoned, that's what compels Ned to go to King's Landing, because it's like, this guy raised me, he's been poisoned. And so it's very, very rich. And you see old Nan as well, who is presumably dead, because we don't see her after the first season, I don't think. So I'm just going to say, hopefully she died of old age before Theon turned up. Um, yeah. But for, other than the Cersei one in season five, this is the first major flashback. So yeah. Bran is back and we're flashbacking all of a sudden. What, what did you what did you make of it? Well, that's the thing. This is a question I have of like, how much can we really trust that vision? And I wonder if that was intentional. But okay. it's, it's so much that I couldn't tell if it was a flashback or if it was like a dream or a, a vision sort of thing. It's like, it's what Bran pictures it to be and mm-hmm. well yeah like like i say like a dream where he's he's kind of imagining things that may never have happened you know maybe hodor wasn't willis maybe he could never talk yeah maybe ned never had these sparring matches it it's all it all could just be his imagination and maybe that's i thought that's why you know he had the warning about drowning of like yeah. This isn't real. You can't put too much faith in this because it's your imagination. But I could be completely off on that. I think that's one where the questions will be answered at a later date. Okay. Because um, I'm interested to see how... Because what you've raised there is is a very interesting point of this bit of Bran's storyline, I think, which develops this idea about um, the, the gap between reality and imagined reality and what you think the past looks like and what actually happened and so it's an interesting question to raise at this point and it is a question that is definitively answered either way um but it teaches you it teaches bran a bit of a lesson along the road as well and i think that this is the warning really that um the three-eyed raven sort of gives to him which is that you can't stay in these visions too long for lots of reasons and so you know you don't want to lose track of yourself you can't live in these visions you have to come out of them and back to the real world um and it's this idea about the danger of nostalgia and the danger of living in your memories um and i think this is just a nice little effective way to do it but as a fan of you know the of how well fleshed out this world is and someone who is currently reading um fire and blood uh yeah I love stuff from this world and I love learning about this weird fictional history and this is just part of the the weird fictional history and it's it's a particularly happy part 
of it and it makes me feel sad that it is no longer that way it'd be like going back and watching the first episode again where it's like you walk into a dream where everybody's happy and i as a little you know little tomboy doing like arrow work and brand can still walk and ned's still yeah, alive yeah. and Catelyn's still alive and everyone's laughing and happy and then it all goes to shit when robert baratheon turns up but like yeah that's that's the feeling i get from this and it's very rich it's, and it gives me warm fuzzies so <laughs> yeah it's really well done and it's like how do you translate um, a flashback in this universe? Because you can't show them all in like flares and gold medallions. <laughs> you have to, you have to sort of communicate this. You know, this is the past, even though it looks more or less the same to us, even if it's you know a couple of years removed since we've seen Winterfell looking like that. Yeah, and this is also an example of this the show beginning to really grind through its kind of soap opera storytelling methods where it just sprinkles a little bit of sort of like, it titillates your speculation, the speculative parts of your brain a little yeah. bit and it gets you sort of like, it's one of those like little tune in next week, tune in next week. And yeah, I I just, yeah, I get all these warm fuzzies about anything to do with uh, old Stark stuff. So yeah. <laughs> it's about the Lord Commander. The former Lord Commander. Does he have to be? What are you asking? Do you know of any magic that could help him? Bring him back? If you want to help him, leave him be. Can it be done? There are some with this power. How? I don't know. Have you seen it done? Davos and the Loyalists, who are guarding Jon's body, prepare to stand off against Sir Alistair Thorne and the rest of the Night's Watch. Before a fight can begin, however, Ed returns with the Wildlings, seizes Castle Black, and imprisons the mutineers. Later that night, Davos visits Melisandre and asks if she knows of any magic that allows people to be brought back from the dead, and Melisandre says that she is aware of such magic but has never performed it herself. And Davos, pleading to bring Jon back, persuades her to at least attempt a ritual. And after attempting said ritual, it appears that Melisandre's been unsuccessful and slowly Tormund, Ed, Melisandre, and then finally Davos all give up hope that Jon could ever have been resurrected and they leave him to rest in the storeroom. But then shortly afterwards, Jon suddenly stirs back to life on the table. I know that there's a huge elephant in the room, but I'd like to talk about the wildling invasion first, if you don't yeah. mind. Um, yeah, another one of these moments in the episode that you mentioned, Lizzie, where horrific deaths are played for slapstick, and it sort of works. <laughs> it does, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a quick question for me, actually. Where were the wildlings before that? For, uh, for some reason, I assumed they were in Castle Black itself. No, they were camped slightly south. Of, okay. of the wall, they're, they're camped south of the wall, about a mile south, something like that. Right, so presumably Ed had gone to fetch them. Yeah, he, he managed to sneak out, yeah. Yeah, sure. No, it was really good, and yeah, I did like that little, um, just a little arrow piercing his shoulder, and he turns around, it's like, what the fuck were you thinking? No, not having that. <laughs> yeah. Off you go. <laughs> um, so yeah, presumably they've they've thrown a child into the prison cells. Yes, they have. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Not it's it was a bit of a surprise actually because like I say going into this episode I thought I had Castle Black all figured out for the season. I thought it would be this sort of internal civil war within the castle itself. Yeah. But obviously you've got this 
looming threat on the horizon with the White Walkers. Yeah. And this just kind of, well, this entire episode just said, nah, fuck that, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, that 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 was the civil war, Lizzie. That that was it. <laughs> it that lasted was it. two seconds. <laughs> it's basically a big giant against fifty blokes, and the big giant always wins. <laughs> and you didn't even really have to do anything. You just stood there looking imposing. It's like, nah, we're not going to win. We're done. <laughs> uh, um, there are lovely touches in this episode. I think John would. It would. You know. It, I think it would. Give him great comfort in death to know that his friends were this loyal, and yeah, absolutely, were still looking out for him even in, even in death. Um, and you even get Davos using Longclaw. Uh, you get Davos picking up John's sword, um, which yeah. I think is a great little like a little baton passing moment before inevitably Longclaw is is going to be handed back to him now. Um, sure. And yeah, I think that for me, the absence of John in this storyline would have made it weaker and I'm glad that they brought him back because as much as Davos was being positioned to be maybe the leader of this storyline now, he's best as a right-hand man. He's best as relief or a foil to somebody else and I'm glad that they made the decision to bring John, uh, to bring him back and so I suppose we can segue into talking about how that happens now. So basically, Lizzie, um, I didn't want to talk to you about it in the season five finale because I didn't want to get you thinking or get you theorizing too much about it. But basically, I caught up with Game of Thrones completely uh, at the end of July 2015. So it was only it was okay. a sh- very, very short period after the Jon Snow had actually been stabbed. And so yeah. for a year, it was basically obsessive Kit Harrington hair watch Oh, uh, because the the it, basically Jon Snow is still dead in the books. His his storyline ends at the point where he is stabbed in the books, yeah. and so there are all sorts of theories in, for book readers about how he's going to come back. Which is that he's he before he died, he warged into ghost to keep himself alive that way. Uh, there were people saying Melisandre would bring him back, or you know something like that, and so. When the pieces were all put together at the end of season five, with Stannis dead, Melisandre lacking someone to believe in and someone to support, she turns up again at Castle Black and she's been, you know, she's had an eye out for John for about a season now. And so everyone was like, well, of course this is going to happen. But then there was a big press junket and like Kit Harrington was going around sort of like saying, um, I'm, I'm not coming back that's it, I'm done. Like, there was a story that came out a couple of years afterwards where Kit Harrington gave a massive speech at a cast dinner and said, thank you all so much for being on this show with me. I'm going to miss you all, and I love you all so much. And then Sophie Turner, who played Sansa, wrote him a letter with pen and paper saying how sorry she was that they were never going to get to do any scenes together because they'd become really good friends off camera. And like, and so she she got all emotional and upset, and Kit had to basically say, "Listen, he he couldn't say that he was coming back. He was yeah. the only person who knew for a very long time." There is this story of him. Uh, I think it's December or January 2015. So December 2015, January 2016. He tells this story um, about this happening where he is driving along the road and he's, he's he says, you know, I was being a little bit naughty. I was, I was going over the speed limit and a police officer pulled me over and immediately recognized me. Right. And 
he said, apparently, I'm sure they embellish things for details, but basically, apparently, this police officer sort of goes back to his car and comes back and says, listen, he says, I know who you are. And he says, I'm sure, you know, you know, that like, you know, I'm sure you're not doing this, you know, just to be bad, but you know, this is, you know, don't drive over the speed limit. You weren't that far over, yeah. but you know, don't do it again. And he says, and he says, I'll let you go if you tell me whether you're coming back next season. And Kit Harrington said he was the only person I told, <laughs> apart oh, from my mum. He said he was yeah. the only, this police officer was the only person that he told. And apparently the police officer says, on your way, Lord Commander. And um, I'm sure there are little bits of that that are embellished for talk show hosts and stuff like that. But this is how <laughs> obsessive it got. Where like he turned up at Wimbledon with with his long hair, and they were like, "Oh, well that that means that he's definitely like he's definitely coming back next season." And oh god, it was just. And so there's a line in this episode that I always come back to with this, which is that it, Melisandre, where she says, um, "If you want to help him, leave him be." Because yeah. John has no consent here. It's true, and so. John is only alive because Davos, Tormund, and Ed can't see, or Davos especially, cannot see a world where John is not in it. And the audience, this is very meta, the audience cannot see a, an episode of Game of Thrones, or a storyline with Game of Thrones, where John is not there, where he's not present. I remember watching that scene, stood up off my sofa, walking around my living room while keeping an eye on the TV because I was so nervous that they were going to cut to black before he came back. And so as an audience, as a fan base and characters in the show, they drag him back from death against his will because none of us could bear going forward without Jon Snow. And... I think that from this point on, they do amazing work with that question about, like, what what does it mean to bring somebody back? And yeah. I just, I and I, I loved, and I, I, no one knows what's going to happen in the books. Um, and they leave it for ages and ages and ages. Like, everybody thought when episode one would come out, bear in mind the context that episode one was dropped into where everybody thought Jon Snow was just going to come back and Melisandre was going to bring him back and it's just nothing for a week. He just lies there dead on a table. And then yeah. uh, when and they, they stretch it to the point where it's like, right, we've got to get on with the story now. And so they leave it and leave it and leave it and leave it and leave it until the very last moment of the episode. And then they bring him back right on the cut to black and it sounds like he's drowning in the blood that he's lost. And it's it's a horrible moment, and yet you cheer at it. And it's like, I remember watching the episode thinking, like, am I going to be able to carry on if he's not in it? And then, obviously, like, he wakes up, and I'm like, oh, yes! Three o'clock in the morning, trying not to wake my parents up, because I still lived at yeah. home. And I just think it, it's a great moment that they stretch the tension out so that it's as thin and as bare as it possibly can be, and then Ghost wakes up, and it's like, oh... Oh, and then they do it in this slow rise again, and then it's um, it it just it sounds like he's not ready. It's not like a slow awakening where it's like, oh, what happened there? It's like a, <gasps> it's uh, I love it so much. It's um, it's the same waking up as Bran in the second episode of season one. Yes, that's an awesome, awesome bit of analysis that I I completely missed the sudden eye opening. In season one. Um, so yeah. I've waxed lyrical about this scene. You said you were initially a bit funny on it, but you've kind of come round on it. Is, is that right? How do you feel? 
I still don't love it, and I I I found it curious that like there were people who couldn't imagine the show without John. Whereas I don't even think he's the main character in the show. I think it's probably I don't know Daenerys or even yeah. Cersei. Maybe this I, is the I, point I that the obsession John. had got to. Yeah, sure. Because it was all the cliffhanger was like, will he come back? And it was like, well, he must come back. He has to come back. He has to come back. If the show doesn't bring him back, then they're doing something wrong. He's the main character, isn't he? And it's like, this, you know, I was talking about how, like, before his death in the show, I was finding it hard to talk about him yeah, fully. And it, it, this is, again, one of these big soap opera moments where it's like, oh, finally, you know, like, I can finally unleash, you know, the show's finally unleashing itself because this is a, a resurrected character, a resurrected main character, knowing how this show treats death. It's like new era all of a sudden and... Uh, yeah, but sorry, I, I cut you off there, so carry on. No, that's okay. Well, well, as you say there, that's a really important point, like how this show treats death as final for the most part, and this feels like a sort of breaking off point, and I think maybe that's why I feel a little bit uncertain about it, just because I'm used to death in the show being, okay, that's it, like you might miss this person, you might have loved this person, but... That's how the world is. People die. They don't come back. You know, once it's done, it's done. Mm. And this show, well, to to me anyway, this show has enough unanswered questions that it doesn't need John there. Mm. You know, there's all these things like, will Sansa ever get to relative safety? Will Arya get her sight back? You know, um, will Daenerys get to Westeros? There's all these questions and there's new questions being added every week. And at no point last week did I did I ever think they shouldn't have killed Jon. Mm. I was thinking it's a it's a good decision. Not well not a good decision, but you know, it's a it makes sense in the show. Hmm. And, and like I say, I had it all <clears> mapped out like where Castle Black was going to go and I thought, yeah, that'll be really exciting. So, I mean, the scene itself was very well done. I don't want to take away from that, but I'm I'm more... I, d- I don't know. There is a part of me that thinks, what if you didn't bring him back? What if you were bold enough to say, you know, we've killed two of our main characters? Hmm. Three, even, if you count Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, I think that's one of those where you're, you're, you're curious about where they're going to take this. Um, there, is a yeah. line, there is a line said by uh, Beric, Beric Dondarrion, the only other character in the show who we know to have been yeah. resurrected, and he's been resurrected six times, um, where he's talking to Arya about what it is to come back from the dead and he says that every time he comes back he's a little bit less something's missing something's not quite there and we're going to be having a lot of very interesting conversations about john this season about whether you feel the death has impacted him whether you feel like his resurrection was a good thing for the story whether his role in the the dynamic of the, uh, the whether his role in this show's universe has changed by this but yeah this is very much a declaration i think by benioff and weiss that this is like new era we're making the decisions no complicated like you know it, i think that's it 
is that they've simplified deliberately simplified a lot and they've simplified the stuff that has in my opinion still has george r r martin stuck 10 years later he's still stuck not quite being able to make that next step whereas with david benioff and dan weiss have sort of said we're going to simplify things and we're going to simplify them in bold ways and it's one of those where i'm like i sort of sit back and go with it because it's exciting in the moment and i think that to take this they signed up with the knowledge that the sixth book would be published by the time they reached the end of season five yeah and it's six years after the end of season five and they (laughs) realized that they weren't gonna they were gonna catch up with george and take him over around season three and so this is when they went to him and said look where's the general direction of the story after this yeah and i think that what we see from this point on is a mixture a 20 percent book material and then a mixture of what george r r martin told them in that meeting in 2013 and their own ideas and a lot of the speculation about the show from this point is whether this will be in the books in this way, whether it will be more complicated, like will John, like I say, walk into Ghost and keep himself alive that way? Yeah, yeah. Like, but I think with David Benioff and Dan Weiss, it's like we're not in the mood to do this. We're in the mood to just bring John back and go our own way with him and to make sure, in my opinion, that they make sure his death and resurrection has an impact on his character. But, you know, we're going to keep kit harrington in the show and we're going to build Jon snow in our vision it's kind of like what they've done with sansa ever since the start of season five where it's like yep okay george thank you so much for building this character and building this world around this character and giving her all sorts of amazing foundations for us to build on but instead of keeping her around the veil we're going to take her to winterfell we're going to put her through this we're going to put her through that and i think that this is a similar thing where it's like okay george yep you maybe have your own ideas we don't know what they are yet but our idea is that John's going to come back and we're going to go in our direction with it. And so, yeah, I'm curious to see what you... I think we're going to have a lot of conversations about John this season. A, a lot of conversations. And I'm looking forward to all of them. Yeah, I think this is... I mean, this is very much the last time I'm going to say this. That kind of... Oh, well, there's that part of me that thinks, what if they just left left him dead? And Because... Mm. Yeah, beyond this, it's more just we sort of talk about episodes in isolation, basically, for the yeah. most part. Anyway, I know there's some exceptions to that, but yeah, I'm I'm curious to see where it goes. But there is that part of me that thinks, gee, if only they'd held out, you know, if only they'd mm. been. <sighs> yeah, it's one of those what if scenarios, like where would the story have gone if not yeah. for this scene? And like you say, it's one of those points of no return. But yes. Um, I also just want to mention Melisandre in in this ep- this week's episode, just yeah, because. I do too. Yeah, we've never really seen much of her vulnerability, but we've seen so much of it in the last couple of episodes. Yeah. And yeah, this feels like a rare victory for her. I think it's the please that does it. Yeah. Where she just yeah. goes, oh, please, like, and all those incantations and stuff they don't really work until she get until she just gives in and just goes for god's sake just give me something and yeah. i am I, I don't know if you're curious but like 
when this episode ended, as curious, as excited as I was that John was back because I really liked him and that sort of stuff. And because I felt like maybe his story wasn't complete when they killed him, but obviously that was yeah. the case for Rob Stark. With Melisandre, I was very curious to see how she was going to react to this, where it's like, she's realized in this, she, you know, she's in this moment, she has realized her power and she's fully yeah. realized her power. She's brought somebody back from the dead. And it's okay, it's not her, it's the Lord of Light that's done it and that sort of thing. Like, you know, it's the thing with Thoros where it's like, um, I think Thoros is being asked what how he can bring back uh, Beric Dondarrion so many times. And he says, oh, it's not me. I'm just the drunk who says the words. Yeah. And I'm curious to see how Melisandre responds to this, whether it's like, uh, oh, I'm a god. Or is it like, oh, well... I don't know. I just said the right things and the Lord listened to me. Well, that's it because, you know, earlier in the episode you have Davos sort of talking to her like saying, fuck the Lord of Light. This is you. I've seen you do those miracles. Yeah. And so, yeah, you. I mean, even even before you said that, I was wondering how much of that was the Lord of Light and how much was her? Yeah, and it's, it's a question that the show leaves dangling. Which I yeah. like, the fact that it doesn't really answer whether it's her that's done it or the Lord of Light. And if Davos had stood over John and done the same thing as Melisandre, would he have been able to bring uh, bring him back? But Yeah, it's true, yeah. yeah. And they do the classic thing as well, which is that if you're going to change a character, you give him a haircut. And we literally watch his haircut in this, oh, in yeah, this episode. Yeah. We, we literally watch it. I mean, it's not like he's gone shaved his head or anything like that, but it's... I, I was going to say before, they yeah. should have, um, before he went to Wimbledon, just shaved his head. It's like, oh, he's definitely not coming back then. <laughs> and then show it in this episode, just going... Like, okay, maybe he is coming back. I wouldn't mind, but so many of the actors in the show wear wigs anyway, so it would made a blind bit of difference. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, I think we've we've really gone on at length about this uh, episode. So, Lizzie, I want your favourite line from the episode. Uh, you'll be relieved to know it's a short one. It's uh, Euron Greyjoy who says, I am the storm, brother, the first storm and the last, and you're in my way. Cool. Uh, who's your loser? Uh, Ramsay Bolton, because who else could it be? He yeah. made a baby, for God's sake. Yeah. And yeah. winner? Uh, Got to go for Melisandre this week. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just that, like you say, that please, just, oh, so good. Bless my soul, Mel was on a roll. It's a zero to hero. (laughs) 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 All right, then. Um, Next week, we will be back with season six, episode three, which is entitled Oathbreaker, which is a nice, makes it a nice little title companion to Oathkeeper from season four. Um, Yeah, just look forward to talking about season six. I think this is the season i'm gonna look forward to talking about uh, the most i have been looking forward to sitting down and watching this episode and talking about it with you for ages and uh, every week it's gonna be like this i think we're like now we're in full game of thrones is a soap opera mode it's its own tv awesome. show now it's uh, yeah, yeah yeah these episodes i'm worried about them running a little long we may have to be very disciplined with it but uh or efficient and mechanical as uh, Game of Thrones David Benioff and Dan Weiss would want us to be I'm sure (laughs) of course we'll see you later everyone see ya